0: Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone good morning. It's so good to be with you all. If I can, let me give you a look, uh, maybe a roadmap of uh, how we'll spend our time together. We're on the series called Kingdom Catechism, and um, I want to do a couple housekeeping stuff, and then we'll read scripture, we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive into the word. Uh, this is probably not a wise thing to say, but the executive pastor said, it's the second service. You can go a little long, as long as you want. Uh, so I'm just warning you ahead of time. I, I'm not going to abuse it, but uh, you may not be able to watch any football today, so just as an FYI. Uh, Can I introduce my wife? Honey, can you stand real quick? This is my wife, Minhee, and so uh, it's great to have her here. Um, we uh, still live in Seattle. I was supposed to move to D.C. a few years ago, but the pandemic kind of stopped that. And so uh, my wife and I, we've been married now, marching towards our 26th year. We have three mostly grown children, our eldest, who's turning 24 tomorrow. Uh, a couple months ago, we dropped her off at the airport with her multiple bags, and she's our first kid that has completely left the nest, left Washington, and she has moved to Brooklyn, New York, and so we're still processing and grieving all of these things, And uh, but people always look at us and go, wow, you have three grown kids, and and you look so young, and I always say, praise God for Asian genes. Uh, 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 So... But uh, I have been traveling a little bit and just got back from some international travel. And the reason why I want to say this is because I don't want to take more time uh, than necessary just to encourage you, if you wouldn't mind, at some point this week, if you have an opportunity to check out a couple of the areas that God has placed us in in this season. Uh, My wife and I, uh, we started a humanitarian organization about 12 years ago called One Day's Wages, where we inspire people around the world. to give up one days of their wages at least once a year. Uh, And so in about 12, 13 years, we've been able to uh, invest about $9 million around the world in small projects. And so if you get a chance, check out onedayswages.org. And then two and a half years ago, um, I took on a new leadership call in Washington, D.C. And so I'm serving as the president of a Christian advocacy organization called Bread for the world, uh, it's a very—I—I—I I, I would say—with humility, it's a very significant uh, organization that seeks to end hunger. And right now, uh, we are in the worst global hunger crisis in at least fifty years. Uh, And it will probably get worse before it gets any better. So I just spent some time in Kenya meeting with smallholder farmers and faith and pastors from all around Africa. I made a stop in Italy to spend some time with the World Food Program, uh, UN agency. And so I would love to encourage you when you have an opportunity, bread.org. I spend the bulk of my time with members of Congress and the administration. It is incredibly challenging uh, for the obvious reasons reasons that you know in our polarized times and yet we feel like this is where we need to be at to engage our members of congress to advocate for our neighbors near and far, both in the U.S. and around the world, who are struggling with hunger. So, again, thank you for doing that. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to join me and turn to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. And this is Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And I know as we read this, some of you will be puzzled because this is typically a passage that a church reads during what we call Palm Sunday in the Christian calendar. And hopefully, as we go through the sermon, you'll kind of get a sense why I felt convicted to particularly preach on this passage. So friends, listen now for the word of God. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Gracious God, thank you so much again for the privilege, the joy that it is to be able to gather together in the house of God. God, we ask For the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, so that each person may have an encounter with the divine, with you. God, as we pray, we also ask the Holy Spirit to meet each and every person wherever we may be. And God, as a a church that cares not only for ourselves... But for our city and our region, for our nation and around the world, we pray that your presence and comfort would be near those who are broken hearted. Uh, God, just on my mind and perhaps for others, God, we pray for those who are hungry, for those who are poor, for those who are starving. God, we pray for the tragedy that took place in Itaewon, Seoul, Korea yesterday. And ask that you would be near the brokenhearted. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So Jesus and identity is the topic of this week's kingdom catechism. Uh, And I know that your pastors and leaders have already done a lot of foundational work on kingdom catechism. And so today, as we're speaking about Jesus and about identity, uh, I want to first speak to you about why this topic is so critical, so crucial, not just in our time, but throughout human history, because it asks the question, who am I? Who am I? I recall growing up as a child, regularly asking myself, who am I? And for us, from the Christian perspective, the answer, who am I, is insufficient in our own human efforts until we come to a convicting answer to the question in verse 10, who is this? That's the question for us. In this story, I want you to imagine the, the, the stirring of the crowd and they're clearly impressed by the entry of this, of this Jesus. And as he enters in, people are compelled to look around and they say, uh, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And I'm not saying that it's an insufficient answer, but there are many ways in which we can answer the question Who is Jesus? Everyone knows that Jesus was a true historical person, but for us, we have to realize, is he merely a prophetic figure? Is he merely a revolutionary figure? Is he just simply a good moral teacher? Is he simply a rabbi? Is he simply a crazy person? Or could it be that Jesus is who he says he is? And if that's the truth, then it begins to inform the quintessential answer to the question, who am I? But because that question, who am I, is the question asked by every single human being in some form or another, the larger culture seeks to fill that void in every human being. That's how I see it. So for example, if you've taken any marketing classes, they'll tell you that there are certain pain or purpose points in every human life. So in Marketing 101, the six pain points or purpose points are fame, power, beauty, money, sex, and success. Those six things, if you look at advertisements, tries to speak into the human soul and meaning by trying to engage human beings on those levels. Now, I'm not trying to vilify marketing. The danger about these pain points is for us to understand that there is nothing in this world that can speak worth and meaning to our human souls than the one who has created us. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Sometimes Christians get into these silly debates about what kind of cars Christians should be driving or not. Uh, and, And again, in the 80s, it used to be a huge debate. Uh, some of you might not know this, but there were debates that Christians shouldn't drive certain kinds of cars that are costing this or have that logo and that emblem. I choose not to engage in those debates. I, I don't need to judge Christians on what they drive unless I feel like if you're driving a Hummer in today's gas prices. But anyways, so so, so if you have a car right here, imagine a car right now A car, when you take away its branding, its logo, its slogan, its whatever it might be, at the essence of it, a car is a mechanical device that gets you from point A to point B. In its bare essence, that's what it is. As humans, we add lots of nuances and layers about horsepower and safety features and all worthy stuff, what's amazing to me is that we as human beings, sometimes we think that mechanical device has the capacity to speak worth into my human soul. If I buy this car, I'll be so much more. And that we actually then begin to use that framework to look at the worth of other human souls so that's the reason why marketing 101 can be good or it can be really dangerous we could take a small a simple smartphone, and by this smartphone, if you and I think that this material device has the capacity to speak meaning and worth and beauty into the human soul, that really is the definition of what idolatry is all about. So why is identity and Jesus such a critical time? Because everything and everyone out there, directly or indirectly, is trying to speak into your soul. And they want a piece of it. So it's a challenging time. It's a challenging time when you add in complexities like social media and how we're projecting ourselves. I mean, do you know that there are places that you can go to? There's a place in LA where you can pay $60 an hour to take photos of yourself in a fake private jet. Right, like imagine Pastor Brian and I taking a photo. Bala! I I don't know what I just did. That was really, (laughs) I just embarrassed my kids, basically. (laughs) This is the reason why this topic is so essential. Because every single day, there are these battles that are waging within our culture, infiltrating our mind, heart, and soul, trying to inform the answer to the question, who am I? And if we forget whose we belong to, if we forget who we serve, then inevitably we're going to be seduced by the larger winds of our culture. So for us, we believe that we belong to Jesus that Jesus is Lord and Savior we believe that not only are we sons and daughters of God and we're gonna repeat that again and again but if we are sons and daughters of God we don't just merely give repetitive answers like this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee and what I mean by that is there's a for us to become nominal Christians who admire Jesus from afar but don't necessarily follow Jesus. I'm raising my hands. There have been seasons in my life where it is so tempting to project the following of Jesus that it is by far easier to fall in love with the idea of following Jesus than actually following the way of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself. And that's the reason why I'm trying to preach on this topic, because yes, Jesus is our Lord. But if Jesus is our Lord, he's our master, he's our rabbi, he's the way. And so we follow in the steps of Jesus. And in the last week of Jesus, during what one would say is this existential moment for Jesus, we follow how he models what it means to be faithful and obedient to God the Father and how we can be faithful like Jesus. See, sometimes you understand what it means To identify with Jesus, not just by propositional or theological understanding, but by actually following in the ways of Jesus. Like both are essential and both matter. I just mentioned here that, yes, I believe in the propositional truth that Jesus is Lord. I believe in the importance of engaging our intellectual robustness. I believe in engaging theological truth. I I believe in exercising all of these things. But I also want you to realize that what makes our relationship with Jesus so unique is that we engage it not merely by propositional truth, But it becomes personal truth in that Jesus Christ came to us. He first loved us. If religion is humanity pursuing after God, pursuing after truth, our intellectual acumen, I believe that the beauty of Christianity is that God through his son Jesus came to humanity. The Gospel of John, uh, the the translation called The Message, uh, Eugene Peterson in this book, I love how he articulates it in the Gospel of John. It says, the word became flesh and it moved into the neighborhood. Just, Just imagine the powerful imagery of the word becoming flesh, taking on flesh and bone and literally moving into the neighborhood. So when I say that God loves you, it's not meant to simply be an academic, nebulous, theological construct. It's very, very personal in the person of Jesus the Christ. You've heard this hundreds of times here at your church and may you hear it thousand more times over your life. And friends, it's this. God loves you. Jesus loves you and the reason why i want to transition to that truth and that statement is that us following in the ways of jesus if we don't understand that it's at the core a response to jesus's love for us if we're not careful it becomes like religion It becomes like habit. It becomes like regurgitation. It becomes like rules and obligation. And the next thing you know, we become like Pharisees all over again. Apart from love, we're simply people who engage in behavioral modification. And the gospel is not just behavioral modification. It's a dynamic response to the magnetic, fragrant love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, I love how Tim Keller, uh, author and pastor, this is how he articulates the gospel in one of his books. He says, quote, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Amen. God loves you. And I pray that that truth would speak to you loudly and clearly and becomes the motivation to everything that you do, becomes the essence of our identity. Uh, some of you might be sitting here, and, and if I'm losing you, let me try to share an imperfect analogy to try to make some sense here. So, um, you know, my, my wife and I, we met about 26 and a half years ago. I've been married now for 25 and a half years, and we met in Korea. I was a pastor at a church in Korea, and she was a counselor at a different organization. And during my last week in Korea, before returning back to the States, I decided to ask her out on a date. Uh, We had five very intense dates before we were in a long-distance relationship. And I want you to know, long-distance relationship back then was long-distance relationship, (laughs) right? Uh, They had just introduced a new technology called electronic mail, okay? (laughs) It was so new, we didn't even call it email, it was called electronic mail, so we started writing letters because we were scared of this diabolical thing called electronic mail <laughs> on DOS format, and if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's okay, and um, phone calls during that time, I recall, it was a $1.35 a minute, between 9 p.m. and 1 a.m., okay, A dollar thirty five. So I remember the first month because we had just started dating, we were like doing quiet times together, we did prayer time together. Our first phone bill came out a thousand dollars. And so I said to her respectfully, You know what? Uh, you pray on your own. Uh, you do your own quiet time, and then uh, we'll have to strategize. What? So this is a very different time. My, our daughter is in a long-distance relationship, and when she's complaining about the challenges of a long-distance relationship, both my wife and I are like, woo <laughs> 0 empathy. So. On our first date, we were having a very good date, had dinner together, it was at this place, this neighborhood in Seoul, Korea, and it's during dessert that Minhee asks what I consider to be the scariest question any human being can be asked, and certainly for men. She looks at me and she's like staring at me. Just imagine like Korean drama, there's music. You know, I don't know if you watch K-drama on Netflix. If you don't, don't start. Um, And and so she's looking at me and she says, "Uh, Eugene, uh, she says, Tell me everything about your life. (coughs) And in that moment, I I literally felt like millions of synapses crossed my mind. I have no idea what that means, but it makes me sound smart. Millions of synapses crossed my mind, and I was struggling with that question because at that moment, I'm computing in my own head, do I tell her everything or do I tell her the Christian version? Right? The Christian version. We struggle with that sometimes. Like for me, the Christian version sounds very much like a very famous hymn. Uh, <clears throat> and he, um, thank you for that uh, vulnerable question. And ah, uh, <laughs> uh, well, um, and you look to the side for a moment to pretend that you're really self-reflecting, <laughs> and then you say, um, "Yeah, I, um, I once was lost." Uh, but now I'm found. I once was blind. And all joking aside, the reason why I struggled with this, because in that moment, I thought to myself, if this woman knew everything about my life, there is no possible way that she would ever be interested in a second date. And that's the reason why we're always projecting. We're always so scared about how other people may perceive us. How do I know God loves you without a shadow of a doubt? Because I believe that God is all-knowing, that God is omniscient. And that while you and I may project certain things, we all know, every one of us, this is not a judgment, if you are a human being, we all know, every one of us, we have things that we have done, words that we have said, there are things and actions we have taken that we have been so ashamed of that we placed into our metaphorical closet. And it's possible that no one knows those things. How do we know God loves you? Because friends, God knows everything about you. And how do we know God loves you? He's still here. He's still pursuing after you. In the same way that we sang this song, there's no sin that transcends the magnificent, profound love and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus loves you. That's the foundation of our identity. So now as we transition to like following the ways of Jesus, always know that the foundation, the root Of everything that we do is in response to the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's get into the story. There's four things, time permitting, that I want to share about this story. And there's so many things about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, to be a follower of the way. But there's four things from this passage that I think is particularly relevant to our challenging times. Uh, As you know, this is that story during Palm Sunday where as Jesus enters in, and there's a lot of things that we can say, we don't have the time to do a a, a thorough exegesis about prophecy, about the meaning of certain things, but know that the words Hosanna comes from the word Yasha, which means deliver and save, and Anna, which means beg or beseech. That if you were to literally translate Hosanna, Hosanna, it means I beg you to save. We beg you to save. Please deliver us. That's what we're singing when we say Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us. And this in itself is important because in our world today, the message that I think is underlying everything is you can do it you can save yourself. You can better yourself. If you just did these five things, if you just take this class, if you just say these words, if you just put on this makeup, if you just buy this car, if you just wear this brand, you can do it. And friends, I'm not opposed to some of the benefits of pop psychology or counseling or therapy. There's great value in those things, great value. But ultimately, only Jesus and Jesus himself can deliver and save us. That in itself is a contradicting message from the message that we hear in our larger popular culture. So imagine Jesus, he's on this donkey, he's basically riding into Jerusalem. Imagine people taking off their cloaks, they're placing it on the road, they're cutting off palm trees, they're waving it. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Here's the first thing that we can learn about Jesus' identity and humility. Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. And yes, we can speak about uh, basically Old Testament prophecy, but I also want you to know that in Bible times, donkeys themselves were a symbol of peace and a symbol of humility. The opposite of donkeys were horses, horses. They were the sign of wealth and war and power and the strength of a military force, which is the reason why we're told that um, our God, it's not about horses and chariots imagine the most powerful man or powerful person on this planet. Some would argue that it's the president of the United States. Imagine the president of the United States entering into Tacoma, into 253 on a donkey. Like it's absolutely incongruous. And yet Jesus chooses to enter to give an expression of the kind of king that he is. But it's not just this. There's a story by the name or a theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Karl Barth is a Swiss theologian. And I think it's safe to say that he's probably one of the most influential modern theologians of our times. Some would argue that he is the greatest modern theologian of our time. And in one of his talks, he refers and and shares about his struggle with the term goat. He's the greatest theologian of this time. And he simply says that he is simply the donkey in the story. Let me backtrack a little bit. I want you to imagine what's going on here. Hundreds of people, cloaks on the ground, waves, people waving the palm trees. Is it possible that initially Jesus on this donkey, the donkey is entering into Jerusalem, and then after a while, the donkey realizes, wow, this is not my typical journey. Why are all of these people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna? Why are these people placing cloaks for my feet? to walk over, why are these people waving palm trees? Is it possible that on this journey, Carl Barth says this, not my words, Carl Barth says, is it possible that the donkey becomes seduced and misled into thinking that the story is about the donkey? <laughs> and the next thing you know, the donkey first kind of walking in simple ways then begins to be seduced by all the shouts and the acclamation, and the next thing you know, the donkey begins to walk a little funky. Huh? Where's my DJ? I... Is it possible that Christians themselves who begin this journey with right intentions, right focus, rooted in the gospel of Jesus, in the identity that Jesus must increase, I must decrease. But after a while, our logos, our egos, our lights, our pulpits, our musicians, our bands, our buildings, our institutions, our denominations, our branding, our tribalism, those things begin to expand at the expense of Jesus Christ. I mean, have you ever heard of a Christian or a Christian leader or pastor who, when they began their journey, who go through a painful moment of being humbled because of their pride? Have you ever heard of a pastor say, I can't wait for that day when I abuse my power? And it's not just Christian leaders, I'm speaking about you and me. I can't wait when I become self-reliant on my worth, on my success, on my degrees, on my wealth, on my 401K, on my possessions. I can't wait till I become greater. I'm telling you right now, it is very possible that as you go along this journey of life, next thing you know, if you lose your focus on who you are, what you're about, and who you serve, you think it's about you. Can I just share a confession? I was at a conference, this is many years ago. I'm at a conference in LA, and I'm speaking at this conference. It was an honor. It was this very famous venue in LA, blah, 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 and I just slipped my mind just slipped and I became allured by the lights and Orpheum theater and all of these things. And I'm just kind of going about doing my thing, pretending to, hey, it's all about Jesus. And I'm walking around and my wife, who's right here, she sits me down and she goes, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I said, what are you talking about? Is literally, Verbatim the words that she says she goes you're walking differently No, no, I'm not (laughs) (laughs) Judger I don't know how I was walking, but I think about this donkey story and I just wonder if there was this little a little story a, a little strut It can happen to every single one of us. Here's the second thing that we can learn. Jesus' identity in a different kind of power related to the first one is I want to juxtapose what power looked like during the time of Jesus. And then you can translate what that looks like for us today. You see, because I think one of the temptations of our world today is to utilize, to pimp the name of Jesus for our own agenda. It sounds really adversarial and combative. I'm not trying to, but I just think that this is the danger of cultural Christianity, where we want to sprinkle on the name of Jesus without necessarily following the ways of Jesus. So think about this story. I'm not quoting two whole paragraphs from a particular author, and he's talking about how rulers and kings during the time of Jesus entered into cities. So you've got Jesus entering on a donkey. Here's this author speaking about a Roman general by the name of Aemilius Paulus and how he enters into the city of Rome. Aemilius, quote, had won a decisive victory over the rebellious Macedonians. His victory was so complete that he had captured the king of Macedonia and led him back to Rome as a prisoner of war together with thousands of other prisoners and an abundance of plunder that had been taken from the Macedonians. When Aemilius entered Rome, Plutarch tells us his triumphant procession through the city lasted no less than three days. The first day was dedicated solely to carrying around Rome all the artwork that Amilius and his army had looted from Macedonians. Just imagine them going through Tacoma with artwork looted from the Macedonians. The second day, they displayed all the weapons of the Macedonians. And when the day finally came for Aemilius himself to make his glorious entrance, he was preceded by 250 oxen whose horns were covered in gold. Afterwards came the vessels carrying the gold coins that had been taken, according to Plutarch, no less than 17,000 pounds. And the story goes on about this amazing procession of power and might and earthly kings. So we have a choice as followers of Jesus to follow the ways of earthly power or to follow the ways of Jesus who chooses to enter humbly on a donkey. Faithful, focused, That juxtaposition. In fact, the story of the final days of Jesus that still gets me every time is the story that Jesus, during his last days, he's washing the feet of his own disciples. There are some historians that have said that there were certain things that certain levels of slaves were not did not have to do, and one of them was washing the feet of their masters. Jesus, our Lord, gets on his knees, washes the feet of his disciples, including the one that he knew was going to betray him. I don't know about you, but man, that challenges me every time. See, Jesus is a different kind of king. His rule is a different kind of rule. It's the rule of love. It's the rule not of coercion or force, but it's the rule of sacrifice. Jesus is winning his subjects, not by force and by suppression, which was part of the course of that world. And sometimes it feels like our world today, but Jesus goes to die for them. He is not the king who asks what you can do for your country. He is the king who does for you what you could never do for yourself. And friends, please don't mistake what I'm trying to say. I'm not... Uh, a, a, a patriot. I love this nation, but it's so important to acknowledge that while politics and politicians have their place in our society where we need healthy governance, our allegiance and our loyalty is never about a politician, a party, or a platform. Our allegiance is to the kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, there is a king, and his name is. Is Jesus. So the third thing, friends, is Jesus' identity and faithfulness. You see, what's interesting about this story, and I've had debates with biblical scholars about this, and I think we could both be partially correct. In the beginning of the story, we see and hear the chants, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And by the end of that week, scholars tell us that not entirely the same crowd, but there are some present saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, that are now saying crucify him and there's something so fickle about our human heart and when we're not grounded in our identity in a culture that is challenging there are beautiful things about our culture and there are challenging things about our culture Friends, hear me well. I'm not trying to like paint this broad brush about our larger culture. There are such beautiful things about our culture and we could also acknowledge there are challenging things about the world that we live in. Both can be true, both beauty and depravity. But if our groundedness, our rootedness is not grounded in the person of who our Jesus Christ is, It is such a challenging time where the winds of our times can blow us around. Uh, Microsoft did a research some time ago. It's not a recent research, but I highlighted this because it was so interesting. They did a research and they did a long time study of 112 people and their brain activity. So it's not a a, a robust study of thousands of people, but they chose to select 112 people and go very deep in their research, monitoring their brain activity for some time. And what they learned is that in our age of smartphones and social media and news constantly filtering on a regular basis, there's so much going on in our world, uh, they said that as they studied people, they realized that the attention span of these 112 people had dropped from an average of 12 seconds in the year 2000 to eight seconds when this research was done a few years ago. Now, some of you might not think this is a big deal. The average goldfish, according to scientists, can concentrate for nine seconds. So we're living in a time today where our attention span, our attention, our affection, our adoration can be so easily swayed. And the highs and lows and everything in between, even when it's not popular, Even when Jesus has been crucified on a cross, even when we tremble in fear, may our faithfulness and steadfastness be rooted in the person of who Jesus Christ is, that he is who he says he is, and that he will accomplish what he said he will accomplish. Jesus is trustworthy. Here's the last thing, friends, and thank you for your patience. I want to speak to you about Jesus' identity in the kingdom of God. Uh, This is all the entire catechism, the entire catechism about the kingdom and the centrality of the kingdom. You'll know that the kingdom of God, that phrase, is used 68 times in the New Testament. Uh, There's an upside-down nature of the kingdom of God. And again, I want to make sure that you hear this well when we speak about the kingdom of God. And I'm so grateful that churches like Anchor and so many other churches and denominations are trying to have a kingdom focus to the work that they do. But if we're not careful, kingdom focus can somehow be translated into mercy and justice and good works. And all of those things can be true. But I want you to realize in the kingdom of God, the king is not justice. The king is not mercy. The king is not good works. The king is not humanism. The king is Jesus Christ kingdom of God there is a king and his name is Jesus therefore whenever we read scriptures if we're reading scripture and if you and I are never convicted by the Holy Spirit it's quite possible that you and I have molded Jesus into your or my image and I say this not as an accusation but I think if you're human we often do this this is the reason why when I read the scripture, this is so embarrassing, but when I read the scripture and there's a convicting word, it's amazing how my brain doesn't ask the question, how is this word a word for me? The first thought that I have is, who is this a for? I think about other people. This is the reason why when we look at Jesus, it's very possible that in this story here, the reason why people are saying Hosanna, Hosanna, some, I'm not sure about all, is because they have an agenda for the kind of Jesus they want. They want Jesus who's going to restore the power of Israel so that they can go back to their rightful place of power and prominence. Even the disciples who traveled with Jesus for three years in the last days of Jesus, they're arguing among themselves who's the greatest among them. You see, everybody has an agenda. And if our identity is not rooted in the person, the words, and the promises of Jesus, I am very concerned that we might be fitting Jesus into our image or our agenda. Uh, That's the reason why, for example, I do believe there is such a thing during our world as a political Jesus. There's a Republican Jesus. There's a Democrat Jesus. There's a conservative Jesus. There's a liberal Jesus. We have socialist Jesus, feminist Jesus. We have mixed martial art Jesus. We have social justice Jesus. We have revolutionary, militant Jesus, nationalistic Jesus, January 6th Jesus. We have homeboy Jesus, bless me Jesus, essential oils Jesus, my least favorite Jesus. (laughs) We have enneagram Jesus, ATM Jesus, healer Jesus. We have black, brown, Asian Jesus. We have white, blonde, blue eye Jesus. In case of emergency Jesus, prosperity Jesus, poverty Jesus. Fill in the blank Jesus. Jesus. If you're like me, the temptation is to try to mold Jesus into my agenda. And rather than you and I orbiting around the lordship of Jesus, we're asking Jesus to orbit around me. So if you're waking up tomorrow morning and you say, Jesus, here's my perfect plan for myself, now bless it. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus will accomplish what he says he will accomplish. So today I pray that uh, as your worship team comes up and leads us into communion, know that these lines that we have, it isn't uh, grafted in certain ways. We don't have a line for those who are conservative, those who are liberal, those who are centrists, we have an invitation for anyone that says, Jesus, you are the Lord and Savior of the world and the universe and my heart and soul, and I want my identity rooted in you. So Father, thank you again for this opportunity to be together as we close in our time of worship. Help us to respond. Help us to respond to your amazing, fragrant, magnetic, profound love but help us to not just be admirers. Help us to be followers of the way. Help our identity to be rooted in you for your glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.